almost. Um, uh, before uh, the message, I just wanted to remind some folks, it was brought to my attention today, uh, we have uh, uh, Christmas cards that we exchange. I don't know if you know about this. Uh, to save on you having to mail it and everything, we actually have an opportunity where you can bring your cards for others in the body here. And where we have that is stashed in the new building in a hallway in there. And so the cards are piling up. So apparently some of you don't know about that. So I just wanted to remind you uh, of that. Go over and check it out. You may actually have a card uh, waiting there for you. And we still have another Sunday. If uh, you want to bring some cards for others here, you're more than welcome to do that. Even though it's a couple days after Christmas, I'm sure it would be appreciated. So I just wanted to let you know about that. It's right in the new building in the hallway between uh, the buildings on the other side of the bathrooms there, just so you know about that. Um, I just want to start off with, um, share with you one of my earliest memories from childhood. You know, as we uh, come to Christmas, I was just thinking a lot about uh, what to talk about. And uh, something that struck me was when I was uh, about three years old, my world was turned upside down when my parents divorced. And I don't have a lot of memories of my early childhood, but there's one memory that really does stick into my mind. Uh, right after my parents split up, I lived with my mother. And I remember that my dad said he'd come to see me, but he didn't tell me uh, when he would do that. And I, I remember one day in particular that I just I really wanted him to come. I really wanted to see him. And uh, I would kind of pace around the door, uh, went up to the window, and just was looking for him, was waiting for him. I remember, uh, for whatever reason that day, I just, I badly wanted to see him. And, uh, you know, I thought to myself, you know, perhaps if I wished harder, he would show up. Perhaps if I took one more trip to the window, he would come. Perhaps if I pressed my nose that much uh, closer upon the window pane, uh, that he would show up. Uh, Well, there was a knock at the door, and... I ran to see who it was, and it was my dad that day. And I still remember, even though I was very young, I think the impact of seeing him uh, brought such emotion that it's still a memory that sticks with me to this day. I remember jumping uh, on him like a linebacker. I was so excited uh, to see him come. I greatly anticipated his coming. And when I think of Christmas, that's the word that sticks into my mind. Anticipation. Anticipation. You know, the coming of Jesus... Christ, the Lord, the Savior of the world, was an event that true believers in God had waited for for centuries, for millennia, in fact, much longer than I waited for my dad to come. And we see this anticipation probably most clearly in one of my favorite persons in the Christmas story. Um, This person is probably among the least known, probably among the, the least discussed in regards to the Christmas account. Uh, You won't see him on Christmas cards. You won't see him uh, gathered around in the manger scene. Uh, He doesn't show up in uh, Christmas plays or holiday movies very often. But in fact, uh, you know, if you ask the group of people, who comes to mind when you think of the Christmas story, this guy probably will not be mentioned. In fact, I asked the junior high kids last uh, week at the progressive dinner, and this guy was only mentioned right at the very end. Uh, He's a guy that you just don't hear about very much when you talk about the Christmas story, and yet I think he embodies the wonder and the amazement, the excitement, and especially the anticipation of this event. So turn with me to Luke 2, where we will read about the special man, Luke 2. He's a man that uh, doesn't actually come onto the scene until about six weeks after Christ's birth, and that's the time when Jesus was brought to the temple to be presented there according to the law of Moses that we see in Leviticus. In Luke 2.22, we find out, and we'll start reading there, this is where the man first sees Christ. 
I'll start in verse 22. When the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Simeon is our lost man in the Christmas story. He's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible but here. He makes this brief cameo in the biblical narrative regarding the Christmas story, and then he's gone. But those few moments that we see Simeon and his description, those are precious moments because they tell us about a faithful and a devout man. We don't learn a lot about Simeon here. We don't know much about his background. We don't know if he is married or single. We don't really know how old he was, though he's often depicted as an older man, but we're not sure about that. We don't even know if he's a priest. It just says there's a man named Simeon and he showed up at the temple prompted by the Holy Spirit. We're not given a lot about him because those details are not what's important for us to know. What's important for us to know is about what he was thinking about. What's important for us to know is what he was anticipating. And I just want to focus on this one little phrase here in this account about Simeon. And that's in verse 25. It says there again, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Looking here is a word that has the idea. It's more than just a casual observation. It's actually an anxious awaiting. It's an eager anticipation. And what was it that he was looking for? He was looking for the consolation or literally the comfort of Israel. That's just a phrase that refers to Israel's redemption. It's a phrase that talks about he was looking forward to the coming Messiah, to the one who would bring comfort to Israel. And that is the promised King of David. And this verb here for looking is the tense is the idea of it's ongoing. He was constantly, continuously looking. That's what characterized the man was looking for the coming Messiah. He was waiting for the return of the king. And I'm not talking about Aragorn and Lord of the Rings. I'm talking about the king, the king of kings. This was the consuming passion of Simeon's life. This is what drove him to the temple each day. This is something that he would think about often. And this anticipation had been building for more than just one man's lifetime. In fact, it had been building for more than ten, man's, ten lifetimes It is something that has been building since the beginning of time. For 4,000 plus years, there was an anticipation of a coming one, a deliverer, a king, a savior. And what brought about this need for Israel to be comforted? What was it that caused the need for an anticipating of a king, of a Messiah? What were the people waiting for? Why were they waiting for a coming deliverer and king? 
Well, you remember the story, right? Following Adam's sin in the garden, what happened? As Adam was uh, spoken to by the Lord, God said to him in Genesis 3.17, after his sin, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all of the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Creation was cursed as a result of sin. Man would experience pain, sorrow, trials, suffering, and death because of Adam's sin. It's like the saying goes, life is hard and then you die. That's exactly what the curse communicated. God said, life will be hard and then you will die. But thankfully, God did not leave it there. He did not leave us without hope of deliverance. He did not leave us without the opportunity and possibility of being saved from such a fate. In Genesis 3.15, God gives us another promise. And actually, it was spoken to Satan who acted through the serpent. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, that is a serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or literally crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You see, the enemy of our souls would have a contender. God said, I will bring someone to crush this enemy of man. And that contender would be born of a woman. He would be a human being that would come. So the ticking of the clock now begins. There's the promise of someone to redeem mankind from the curse that he was under. And from that moment on, humanity anticipated the coming serpent head crusher, one who would lift up the curse, would lift the curse from us. And, you know, I believe Eve expresses this anticipation right afterwards when she gives birth to Cain. And she says of Cain, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And actually the word for help of is not in the original Hebrew. It's literally, I've gotten a man, the Lord. You see, I think Eve was actually anticipating that this was the one God was going to raise up to crush the serpent's head. But Cain proved to be the opposite, didn't he? He was not the deliverer, far from it. Then over about a thousand years later, eight generations after Adam, comes Lamech. Lamech is the father of Noah, the son of Methuselah. Well, Lamech, listen to what he says, because he too had this anticipation of a redeemer. Genesis 5.29. Now Lamech called his name Noah, his son, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. You see, Lamech had hope that maybe... Maybe my son is the one. Maybe this is the one who's going to relieve the burden of the curse from us. But we know that that was, in fact, not the case, right? In Noah's lifetime, our evil, our wickedness had gotten so bad that the Lord destroyed the entire earth with the flood, save Noah's family. Well, let's move ahead another thousand years to the time of Abraham. When Abraham came on the scene, God's promises through him, he promised Abraham that in you all the families of the earth would be blessed. You know, and Abraham had a messianic hope. Abraham was looking forward in anticipation of one who would come and deliver and fulfill that promise. Jesus said of him in John eight fifty six that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. I think Jesus is telling us that, that Abraham had that messianic hope. 
Job, listen to what Job said, who lived in about, lived in about the same time as Abraham. He said in Job nineteen twenty five, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet my flesh, with my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Even Job, a man who suffered probably more than any other man in this life, he was greatly comforted by the fact that there was a Redeemer that would come for him. You see, even Job had this anticipation of a coming one. About 500 years later, after Job, Moses comes on the scene. He was brought to deliver the people of Israel, but he was not the deliverer. But even Moses looked forward and looked ahead in anticipation to a coming Redeemer. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18:15 he was telling the people that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your countrymen and you shall listen to him. Hebrews 11:24 tells us that by faith Moses when he had grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin considering the reproach of the Christ Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to a reward. You see, I think Moses, he rather than having a life of pleasure in Egypt, he chose to be with the people to whom a Messiah was promised. The anticipation of the Messiah continued. Hannah, in her prayer, you remember precious Hannah, who was promised a son after she cried out to the Lord. She'd been been barren many years. At the end of her psalm of praise to God, listen to what she says. In verse 10 of 1 Samuel 2, Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and He will give strength to His king. There had been no king yet at that time. And will exalt the horn of His anointed. Anointed there is the word Mashiach, Messiah. You see, Hannah had a hope of a coming Redeemer who would rule the world and judge the earth. And then just less than a hundred years after that comes King David. King David, to whom was given the promise in 2 Samuel 7, 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. David was given very specific details. David, you will be the one through whom I'm going to send my king. In fact, he will come from your family. He will be one of your descendants and he will rule forever. So David and many others spoke of this coming king in over 11 psalms. It's written about him. For the next several hundred years, the prophets unload on us with references to this coming Messiah. All the way from Hosea to Joel to Amos, Micah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, all of these men prophesy about a coming Redeemer, about a coming king, one who would rule the world. Probably most well-known among the prophets is the prophet Isaiah. In fact, he's often referred to as the fifth evangelist after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because there are over 15 or 18 passages in Isaiah specifically referencing the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. Among the most most well-known, we quoted it earlier, Isaiah 9, 6. Right? A child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders... And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to his government, the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Even in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, the very last words ends with anticipation. 
Matthew or Malachi 4, 5 speaks of the forerunner to the Messiah. And he says there, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Then it was silent. 400 years, God didn't send another prophet. He didn't speak through any prophet for centuries. But that did not stop the anticipation of a Messiah. That did not stop the eager, awaiting desire of the people to have a coming deliverer. And I bring these Old Testament passages up and the people involved here, not so that you could simply have a, I can give you some strong theological support for a Messiah being revealed in the Old Testament. In fact, I gave you very few verses. There's over 65 passages that are specific and direct references to a coming king. No, I I want you to see that Jesus Christ is the anticipated man. He is the most anticipated man in all of human history. All the universe revolves around this one man. The Bible is very clear about that. The coming of Jesus was not some minor event. It was not some fulfillment of a few obscure prophecies. It was not some blip on the screen of mankind. These examples of Eve, Abraham, Moses, Hannah, David, Isaiah, Job, they all show that we've been waiting for a deliverer from day one. Creation has groaned and suffered and been plagued under the curse of sin. Satan's run rampant over humanity since the fall, hasn't he? The longing of those who want to please God has been, we need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. When will He come? When will He come? And Simeon carried out that anticipation too. You know, we don't know really how long before God had promised that He would see this Messiah. Had it been days? Years? Decades? We don't know. We aren't told that. Can you imagine Simeon, once he's told this through the Holy Spirit, showing up at the temple each day? Hey, maybe it's them. Hey, there's a little kid. I wonder if that's the one. Oh, look at that young couple with the baby. Daily. Remember, longing, continuously going and seeing, maybe today's the day. Could this child be the one? And then, in a sense, right, Simeon had his nose pressed against the window pane. Simeon eagerly awaited. And then it happened. The day arrived. And just like my excitement when my dad arrived that day, I'm sure Simeon's was even much greater because to him he realized this is the one. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one that everyone through history has been waiting to see. It's him. He's here. I mean, can you imagine? He was so excited. He said, Give me that baby. I want to hold him. He was thrilled. He was amazed. He was in awe. In fact, our dear Simeon was so overcome with joy that he said, I can die now. I really can. Lord, let me go. I've seen him. That's all I need. That's all I wanted. He was satisfied. His anticipation had been ultimately realized in seeing the one anticipated for all those centuries. Nothing else in this life is going to even come close to that, to the joy that he felt then. 4,000 years of agonizing waiting, 4,000 years of unfulfilled hopes, generations of letdowns. And yet this was the time, not anymore. The Savior had come. The Redeemer had appeared. 
And just what can we learn from this dear saint, Simeon, and from all those that went before him? What can we learn from the anticipation felt by so many in humanity who waited the promise of God to be fulfilled? I mean, it's true that we weren't there. In fact, we're 2,000 years after the fact. We probably won't be able to taste or feel or experience exactly what the shepherds went through or Mary or Joseph or the wise men or even Simeon. It's hard to really imagine the joy and the anticipation that they felt. But, you know, Simeon is an example to us because aren't we waiting for an important event? Aren't we too waiting for the Messiah? Aren't we? We are. We are. We too are anticipation of our Savior coming back. We too are eagerly awaiting the return of the King for Him to set up His throne, to make things right, to stop all this nonsense in life, sin being praised, in fact, and glorified and justified, Satan being allowed to, to do terrible, terrible things. We await for Him to set up His kingdom. Yes, Simeon has much to teach you and me. He displayed much faith in God. His life was oriented around waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. What patience to wait to watch each day. What hope in the Lord. What trust that God would fulfill His promises. Simeon's life was oriented around his hope of Christ's coming. Is yours oriented around His return? The Christian group New Song came out with a song, I don't know, probably about 10 years ago. It was called Fingertips and Noses. It's a cute tune. Uh, It describes a group of special needs kids. Um, They were taught one day about the coming of Jesus Christ and what he had done and, and giving himself as a ransom for you and for me on the cross to pay for our sins because we deserve the punishment of hell. And this teacher had explained this to them and and they embraced Jesus. They embraced their understanding that he had died for them and that they needed his forgiveness and and they eagerly awaited his return. In fact, the song talks about these kids not being able to stay in their chairs during the school time because they kept rushing over to the window to look and see if he was coming. The chorus of the song goes like this. Fingertips and noses pressed to the window panes, longing eyes, expectant hearts for him to come again. All they know is that they love him so. And if he said he'd come, he's coming. And they can't keep their windows clean for fingertips and noses. It's a cute little song, but a deep and abiding message. Are your noses pressed against the window pane, eagerly awaiting his return? If you're his child, he's coming back for you. I wish I had the same fervency and longing for my Messiah as I did that day many years ago, waiting for my dad. And I hope that this year, that Christmas is a time for you to reflect and to think about and to fully take in that anticipation felt by Simeon and all those before him. Let this be a time that it's a reminder to you that Jesus' mission is not finished. We await the return of our Messiah. And it's interesting is how the New Testament ends. It also ends with the theme of anticipation. Jesus, speaking to John the Apostle and giving him the great vision in the book of Revelation, he says to John, Yes, I'm coming quickly. To which John replies, Amen, come Lord Jesus. 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We eagerly await. Let's pray. Lord, uh, may you stir in us a great anticipation for your return. Lord, we know you're coming back because you came once before and there's more work for you to do. And we know it's in your timing and uh, Lord, we don't know the day or the hour. But God, uh, so many in history did not know the timing of your first coming. And when you came, what wonder and awe and amazement Lord, we are amazed. We're, we're blown away by how you chose to come to this earth. And, and God, I know that when you return, we're going to be full of wonder and amazement more than we could have ever expected. God, make us eagerly awaiting your return. Stir in us the heart of uh, this man, Simeon, who was longing to see the redemption of Israel, Lord, the coming of the King. May we long for that day. May, Lord, we not be distracted by anything from keeping us from looking forward to your return so that we could be with you. Lord, may this Christmas just again be a reminder to us and an encouragement to anticipate you. And we thank you so much for, um, for your coming. We thank you so much for your promise all the way back at the beginning to crush the head of the serpent, to redeem us from the curse. We are so grateful. In your name we pray. Amen.